Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to introduce you to some of the creative and innovative individuals who are helping to shape the future of the American West. I meet most of these people either through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around the outdoors. I talk with everyone from ranchers to writers, conservationists to entrepreneurs, athletes to artists, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. We're still in the early stages of the podcast here, so if you enjoy it, please take a minute to share with a friend or to post it on your social media. You can also give it a good review on iTunes if you have a chance. A recommendation from a friend is always the best endorsement, so I'd really appreciate your helping to spread the word. Before we get started, I want to thank Mountain Khakis for sponsoring this episode. Mountain Khakis is an outdoor apparel company based out of Jackson Hole, Wyoming, that makes some of the best casual outdoor clothing on the market today. It's durable and versatile, and I wear it almost every day. Just last week, for example, I had a work trip up in the mountains, which consisted of an early morning presentation at a county office, then on to a ranch tour, which included hiking around in the mud and climbing over fences, and then I ended the day with some fishing on a different ranch. Luckily, I didn't have to change clothes three separate times because my mountain khakis were appropriate in all three situations. Mountain khakis are perfect for my lifestyle, and if you're listening to this, I bet you'd like them too. So check them out at mountainkhakis.com or on all their social media. Just type in at mountain khakis. My guest today is Brady Robinson. Brady is the executive director of the Access Fund, a conservation and advocacy organization that helps protect climbing areas throughout the United States. Despite being a relatively small nonprofit, they have a very broad reach, and they employ a variety of sophisticated methods to achieve their goals. They've been enormously successful and effective in their 25-year history. Brady also has a seriously impressive outdoor resume. He was an instructor for both Outward Bound and Knowles, and he's done a number of large-scale expeditions internationally, notably in the Himalayas where he put up some first ascents. He's still pushing hard with the climbing, mountain biking, and other adventures while simultaneously leading the Access Fund and being a fully committed family man to his wife and two daughters. Interestingly enough, I met Brady back in 1999 when he was my Knowles instructor during a semester in the Pacific Northwest. It's no exaggeration that he was the best teacher I've ever had, and I've had some really good teachers. And I learned more important lessons and skills during that one semester than I did in all of undergrad combined. I credit my time on Knowles and specifically Brady's teaching to leading me into a career and hobbies that revolve around wide open spaces. We had a fun conversation that covered a wide range of topics. We dig into the details of the Access Fund's mission and methods, including why non-climbers should care about and benefit from their work. We talk about Brady's diverse career centered around life in the outdoors, and he tells a few great and some scary stories from his big mountain expeditions with climbing partners such as Jimmy Chen and Conrad Anker. Brady also offers some advice for young people who'd like to pursue a career centered around the outdoors, conservation, or advocacy. Even if you're not a climber, I know you'll get some solid insights out of this interview. The work that the Access Fund is doing has ripple effects far beyond the climbing community and into broader areas of conservation, public lands policy, and general outdoor recreation. Also, Brady is just a super interesting guy who has a very unique point of view, so there's lots to learn in this interview. All right, that's enough of my talking. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Brady Robinson. Are we live? We're live. Okay. So um, 
The first question I've been asking people just to kind of get things started is when you meet somebody, what do you tell them you do? Well, I mean, I, uh, I, I run the access fund, so effectively my job is to keep climbing areas open and conserved. Mm-hmm. And so as the executive director of a nonprofit, there's a lot that goes into that, but fundamentally my job is to set the direction and with the board and make sure that the organization is well-funded, has the right people in the right jobs, pointing in the right direction to make sure that we've all got places to go climbing in the outdoors Mm -hmm. and that those places are well cared for so that they're going to be there today, tomorrow, next week, and for the next generations. Got it. And so for people who who aren't all that familiar with the Access Fund, can you talk about some of the specifics of how you guys do that? Yeah, so we've been around, this is our 25th year. Mm-hmm. We're going to be having a, a 25-year anniversary here in the Boulder area in October. And uh, everybody's invited to the party. You can cool. come on our website. Uh, but we're, we're, uh, we do a number of things. We have probably the oldest and kind of thing that we've been doing for, the, for all 25 years is public policy. So um, when there's a conflict or when a land manager is presented with a challenge of, of managing climbing, yep. one of the options available to her or to him is to close it. And so a big part of our job is to make sure that that is not a, a painless decision. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, I and so, I mean, our view is that uh, climbing is a legitimate use of public land. Mm-hmm. It's a use that predates some of our greatest acts of legislation, including the Wilderness Act, and sometimes... Uh, our work focuses on on climbing in wilderness, mm-hmm. although it's not exclusively. And so our job is to we're at our best when we're supporting land managers, mm-hmm. when we're uh, working with them, making their jobs easier, and helping them make better decisions. You know, just two days ago, uh, the superintendent of uh, of the, of um, Devil's Tower National Monument mm-hmm. uh, called us up and said, "Hey, we're issuing a press release. Uh, he hasn't been in the job quite a year." Uh, is this accurate that you support the, vol- the, the voluntary ban in June, which is a, a compromise we helped to broker with that national monument and Native American tribes who want access to that specific place without a whole bunch of people hanging off the side of it for mm-hmm. the month of June to do some of their ceremonial things? It, he reached out to us to see if we still supported that. We said, absolutely, we do. We're going to set up a call and talk to him about some of his goals. That particular national monument does a great job of uh, another place that climbers come in conflict is sometimes with raptors, with, mm-hmm. with cliff nesting raptors. They do a phenomenal job of managing that. They watch the birds. When the birds fledge early, they open the climbing areas open, uh, the climb, climbs open uh, mm-hmm. at the same time. So we've got a lot of really positive things to talk about with that superintendent. So that's an example of where I feel like we've, we're doing a good job the superintendent feels comfortable reaching out to us, asking for our help and advice. Mm-hmm. And we're going to reach out to him and say, what's on your agenda? What are some of the things facing you? How can we help? And so public policy, I could talk about that all day. We also are a certified uh, accredited land trust by the Land Trust Alliance. So we buy and hold property uh, for the benefit of the climate community. And we put together, I mean, you're in the real estate business, so you know that these can be very complicated transactions mm-hmm work with easements, reversionary deeds, and all kinds of other fancy ways of basically making sure that privately held lands uh, either remain or are open to 
the public, specifically for climbing. What's an example of a privately held <coughs> climbing area that a lot of people would know? Well, it depends on where you, I mean, the Red River Gorge has been a lot of, mm -hmm. of I mean, that's one of the kind of national spots sure. where we've been involved in. We're closely with Red River Gorge Climbing Coalition. Mm -hmm. It's common that we'll work with a local group. Mm -hmm. We've got a little over a million dollars in revolving funds, so we can generate zero to very low interest loans mm -hmm. for climbing acquisitions, and that's what we've done in the red. Mm -hmm. uh, it, jailhouse, mm -hmm. which is in California, kind of close to Yosemite, and yep. some of the best steep sport climbing in terms of training. Mm -hmm. um, that was another transaction we did. It was a complicated transaction where we had a landowner that we generated a loan to, and uh, and they needed it for their own personal business reasons. And in exchange, we got a, an access and conservation easement on an 86-acre parcel mm -hmm. and the, the loan was secured with another parcel. It was a very complicated transaction. Sure. Five years later, loans paid back, climbing is conserved, landowners happy. It's great. So because we've got the expertise in one of our staffers, Joe Samatero, and we've got a million dollars in capital, mm -hmm. we can make deals. Yeah. And before we had this money, we raised this money about eight, seven years ago. Before we had the money and the expertise, you know, local organizations were still doing some of these transactions, like the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition was doing some work, the Carolina Climbers were, but we didn't have the opportunity to really help facilitate mm -hmm. that. And so we've done, I want to say, 19 projects so far with the fund, oh, and wow. there's a lot more to be done. So, and we revolve it. So basically, when we generate the loan, it buys us and the local community time mm -hmm. to pay the loan back. Sure. Because as you know, a lot of times, you know, we've got a big spreadsheet with all the various climbing properties we're interested in, mm -hmm. and each one's got a percentage of likelihood. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are in the 5 to 10% likelihood of hitting in any given year, mm -hmm. but then something changes. The landowner, maybe, you know, heaven forbid they die, or mm -hmm. their financial situation changes, and yep. then all of a sudden something that's just kind of on your long list becomes yep. urgent, and it is time to go. Well, that's what I was going to ask. What is you guys' <laughs> system for figuring out the priority of these deals because I would imagine it's worth noting that you know the point of this podcast or the, the tagline is American West but you guys operate all over the entire United States we do and um, so how do you even begin to prioritize these things you, we have to be somewhat opportunistic I mean we're limited by staff time and um, and our capital mm -hmm. but uh, okay so something in the West that was really interesting there's a place called the homestead which is you know, in rural Arizona, mm -hmm. uh, roughly between Flagstaff and Phoenix. And there's great climbing on some BLM property there. And there was a big ranch for sale. And it was the crucial access point. And this mm -hmm. is a particular climbing area that is not super popular. It's been a little bit under the radar. The road yep. is in bad shape. It's kind of hard. Yep. But we took a look at it and we're like, you know, geographically, there's a lot of important population here. Yeah. Uh, this is a community that may be poised to lose some climbing access because there's a big mine that we hope doesn't go in but could go in, mm -hmm. uh, Resolution Copper Mine in Oak Flat, and there's some climbing resources that will be impacted by that. Mm -hmm. And this is a community that could really use a win. Mm -hmm. This is this is the best limestone sport climbing, winter sport climbing maybe in the country, mm -hmm. definitely top three locations. And there was a lot of local groups that w that have, and we knew would step up to help, but nobody could do it on their own. Mm -hmm. And so it was one of those opportunities where we had, you know, for $150,000 and some staff time, we bought the ranch land, secured the access, rebuilt, built the trail, rebuilt the road, worked mm -hmm. with the state and the BLM. It was a, a huge project yep. and um, a huge win. Yep. 
And so we've got a big matrix, but at the end of the day, an opportunity presents itself and we have a, no, a go, no go decision. So on that one, <clears throat> from start to finish, you know, when you decided go time, how long did it take to... It's still going. I mean, really? We, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was... We're at least two years into it and it'll... The life cycle of these things is, is two to... Honestly, we've had 20-year life cycles. Sure. Um, for we, the uh, Golden Cliffs outside of uh, the North Table Mountain outside of Golden, Colorado, uh-huh. we held that for over 20 years. Really? And uh, finally got a... Our, our strategy is never to hold land in, into perpetuity, but we held that for a long time. And um, in those 20 years, the, the county's kind of view of climbing and recreation changed substantially. Mm-hmm. And we were able to put together a deal where there's a reversionary deed. Mm-hmm. We deeded it over to the county. But if they ever close it permanently, it would come back to us. Mm-hmm. And so the people who put the deal together felt like that was an adequate security. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, the county is well-funded, and they've got rangers, and they've got, they, they can manage the property. Sure. So I don't know if that answers No, yeah, that, that. that definitely answers so, it. Um, so we so we've got a public policy. We've got acquisitions. We've got you know we wouldn't be anything without our hundred plus organizations that are affiliates. So we've got local climbing organizations all around the country, and you know we've got a total headcount at the Access Fund of 23, 18 full time staff. But it's a big country and there's a lot to do. Sure. And without those hundred plus local climbing organizations on the ground, uh, and some of them are, are very small. Some of them have got full-time paid staff it it runs the whole gamut but supporting them and making them successful is one of the most important things that we do and that's one of the reasons why we created this revolving loan program to help enable them to make these acquisitions we've also got a a very healthy stewardship program Mm -hmm. so we have two teams of two professional trail builders out in uh Jeep Cherokees. You've been doing that for several years. Several right? years. We've yeah. got a partnership with Chrysler and Jeep. Oh, that's great. And um, and so ten months out of the year, they're out there, hands on training people. How do you, how do you get that job? That sounds like a. I bet you got a line out the door. Well, huh? I mean, I think people should look at it as a lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as much as a job, but we we get a lot of applicants. I bet so. And um, it's a tricky thing to staff because you think about it, you got two people on the road. Yeah. In a vehicle, in a Jeep, for 10 months. Yeah, that's where that expedition behavior stuff you taught Ex- back in the old days that's comes right, in. That's right, that's <laughs> right. And so, um, you know, things are going to, there's going to be tough times. There's gonna and be it's hard work, months. too, on top of that. I think yeah. it sounds real <clears throat> glamorous at first, but, you know, three months into carrying rocks all day long, that's yeah. serious business. When we launched this program, we, we went to IMBA, the International Mountain Bicycling Association, also leave no trace, and said, okay, you all have done similar programs. Mm-hmm. Tell us what we need to know. What are the pitfalls? And they said, make people apply together. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. Do not play matchmaker. You will not. You will screw that up. <laughs> and so a big part of the interview process is trying to figure out and it doesn't have to be a romantic relationship, but sure. is the relationship of these two individuals yeah. robust enough? Is there enough history, and is there enough hope <laughs> that it will be a healthy one uh-huh. for hopefully more than one season? Because you learn a lot the first season. Right now, Mike and Amanda um, are on their third season. Are they really? Yeah, yeah, they're in their third. Where season. are they right now? Uh, they, jeez, oh, I don't even. It's a testament to how big the organization is that I don't. Sure. I don't know the answer to that question off the top of my head. They were recently in Indian Creek, and I want to say they're somewhere out west. You'd have to go on our website and check that out. But um, so anyway, so we, they have to they have to apply together. So we've got that program. Um, Ty runs that, and we, 
you know, honestly, we're thinking about adding a third team. Uh-huh. Right now, there's so much work to be done, and we're actually finding that uh, land management agencies and local foundations are willing to pay uh-huh. for this work. And so we're able to actually sort of charge for the work that we're doing. And, and most of the time, in, in other arenas, we're more of a charitable organization. So it's allowing us to scale. Sure. It's allowing us to scale because local organizations and, like I say, agencies are willing to kind of chip in and help pay for it. So we may have three teams uh, next year kind of stand by for that. We also um, offer support to landowners. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of landowners out there who feel a lot of pride in their property and want people to enjoy it they just don't want to lose their shirt mm-hmm. in the process and they don't want to you know get get a, a lawsuit if if something bad were to happen so we'll consult with landowners and talk about risk management strategies sure so those are some of the programs and ways we've also got i guess the last thing i'd say is that um we have an education wing mm-hmm. where we're trying to make sure that uh the next generation of climbers and also some of the people who've been around for a long time have an understanding of the impacts that they have and, mm-hmm. and the ways that we can behave yeah. with each other and with the environment to ensure that we've got a place, a healthy place to go climbing in the future. And sure. we've got a great partnership with Black Diamond on something we call the Rock Project. Oh, nice. So, um, yeah, for a, for a relatively small organization, we have a lot of programs and a lot going on. I think what you said about having your, your partners on the ground throughout the country is key. Like my wife works at an international development organization. That's their model is... They're here in Boulder, but they have people spread out who are on the ground who can actually identify the important issues because there's only so much you can know oh. sitting here in Boulder, you know. And so it's that's pretty cool that you can find out what's going on on the ground, what are the needs. I imagine that makes that whole pri- prioritizing the the projects a lot easier than it would be. It does, and <clears throat> you know we're we're based in here in Boulder, Colorado, but you know we've got four full time staff in regional offices and four full time staff on the road and as we expand we may put a few more bodies here in the boulder office because there's certain functions that are just better suited to be in a headquarters but frankly more regional offices more regional staff being relevant and more local is our strategic our strategic plan is to do that so as we grow we're going to have more people out there in the world that seems like it makes sense i mean i i couldn't imagine it working any other way um so if you back up a minute, um, you know, I've, on this podcast, I've talked to people in the ranching world. I've talked to people, you know, doing recreational stuff, people in water. So why should non-climbers um, care about what the Access Fund is doing? Well, I think, I mean, they, there's a lot of organizations doing a lot of good work. And if, if, if someone doesn't feel passionate about climbing, maybe they, they're not going to feel the immediacy of our work as mm-hmm. much as they would if they were. I mean, I would say that um, one of the things that I'm the most proud of over the coming up on nine years that I've been in the job is um, I was the founding chairperson of the Outdoor Alliance. And so this is a, a 501c3 organization that is made up of the International Mountain Bicycling Association, mm-hmm. American Whitewater, um, Winter Wildlands Alliance. I didn't American, know you were a founder of that. American Canoe Association, uh, the Mountaineers, and the American Alpine Club. Now, to be clear, it was underway before I was even hired here, sure. but it was kind of an ad hoc group. And um, <clears throat> I in no way, you know, I'm, I'm trying to claim that this was my idea or anything, but um, I was the steering committee chairman and then ultimately the board chairman as we made the transition mm-hmm. from sort of an ad hoc group with someone hired part-time to actually saying, you know what, we can't fulfill our true... Um, 
potential mm -hmm. without incorporating. There was somebody, the, uh, Luther Probst, who um, is a, a big player in, in conservation mm -hmm. in the West. Um, we hired him as a strategic planning consultant. He and I were having lunch one day. And he said, Brady, you know what one of your problems is? And I said, what, Luther? He says, your board sucks. <laughs> right to the point. And I said, you're right. Why yeah. does it suck? Because it was made up at that time only of executive directors of nonprofits. Uh -huh. Now, having a few executive directors of nonprofits on a board is great. But in this case, we were all just necessarily conflicted because our day jobs was to make sure our local, our, our own organizations were healthy. Yep. But meanwhile, we're trying to create this collective voice for human-powered outdoor recreation, which is what the Outdoor Alliance is. And without some external board members to kind of give us some perspective and governance, we were never going to reach our potential. And so, you know, Luther's insight... And a lot of other conversations made us all collectively realize the only way we're going to get there is by actually making this thing its own 501c3. So we incorporated Adam Kramer, who was uh, a, just a hired consultant really at the time, dissolved his law practice and became the executive director. Um, I presided over the first board meeting and then handed the torch over to Luther Probst, who continues to be the board president because I knew he was much better suited to do it. Um, but to get back to your original question, why should people care? Um, Recreation is on the increase. Uh, it's one of the only industries that grew during the recession or, or, or held steady and had some growth during the recession. Um, outdoor Industry Association has put out some numbers recently talking about how you know, the outdoor recreation economy is, is coming up on $600 billion annually if wow. you kind of throw it all together. I think there's an understanding that <clears throat> camping, climbing, mountain biking, trail running, boating, all these things... And, of course, hunting and fishing, these are – this isn't just people screwing around. This is a major industry, and these things are on the rise. And so groups like the Axis Fund and also the Outdoor Alliance are increasingly becoming players in the conservation space. Mm -hmm. Our voice matters and is, I think um, – has increasing relevance to decision makers, mm -hmm. uh, lawmakers. You know, I was – Recently in Washington, D.C., with the Outdoor Industry Association, which is the trade association of the outdoor yep. industry, Conservation Alliance, which is uh, an alliance of outdoor industry companies that pool resources mm -hmm. to make grants that also advocate for certain policies, and then the Outdoor Alliance, which is this group that is the human-powered, the user-based human-powered outdoor recreation groups. Mm -hmm. We were all in D.C. the same week talking to lawmakers about what's important to us, talking about land and water conservation fund, mm -hmm. talking about how the fact that the Forest Service doesn't have an adequate way of funding firefighting is just completely decimating mm -hmm. the budgets for everything else that the Forest Service needs to do in the other yeah. agencies, and talking about the importance of keeping public lands public mm -hmm. um, so that they're open for us and for future people to enjoy. So I think... Even if someone isn't passionate about climbing, just understanding that the Access Fund is part of a growing movement of outdoor recreation advocacy groups that are really getting our collect we're really getting our collective act together. Mm -hmm. We're identifying priorities that we have and we have a unique voice in the conservation world, not unlike a rancher mm -hmm. does, because we know these places. 
uh, we go out and passionately interact. Now, the, now, rancher owns the place in some cases and makes his or her living. And there's a lot of public lands there too, though. Right, true. Yeah, right, yeah. are they grazing? But, sure. But you know, a rancher has a has a personal sure. experience yeah, connection. Yeah. Oftentimes, that goes across generations. So I don't want to cause any offense to those in the ranch no, community. No, I understand. This, but, but in a similar vein, this is not an academic exercise. Mm-hmm. When a climber goes climbing in Yosemite National Park and spends days up on El Cap or goes up in a Rocky Mountain National Park or goes to some place that no one's even heard of and isn't as particular mm-hmm. spectacular. They make connections to that place. They know it. They know it in a way that other people don't. And when they come out and advocate for its protection, mm-hmm. they do so in a way that you can if you don't know the place. It's yep. hard to love a place you don't know. Mm-hmm. And if you love a place, you do a really good job of advocating for it. So just to kind of wrap this up, you know, I really, that's one of the things, I, I think that climbing areas should be open. I think climbing is amazing. It's the one activity that I think I'm going to do my whole life. And so I passionately work on behalf of the climbing community to make sure that their place is open and protected for them to climb. But I also believe that there are greater things in the world mm-hmm. than just climbing. And to be part of this movement of the, the human-powered outdoor recreation community, for lack of a better term, standing up and saying our voice matters and these places need to be protected mm-hmm. is really exciting to me mm-hmm. and in some ways gives even greater meaning and context to the work that we do here at the Access Fund. Yes. Yeah, I think, you know, personally, I think every person who goes out and climbs or rafts or mountain bikes, you know, the more people you can get out doing that, the more potential future conservationists you have. <clears throat> and it's it's not, you know, a rancher who grew up on a, on a ranch, you know, spending every day out has a connection to that place, just like a mountain biker who's, you know, cruising around Batasso mm-hmm. has a connection to that place. And that's right. I mean, that's how I got into conservation because of, you know, going on camping trips and going on knolls with you. And me too. Um, I mean, I didn't, when, when, when we did that course, mm-hmm. I didn't see this in my future. Sure. But it, the, the die was being cast as we were wandering around. <laughs> well, that's one thing. And, and I want to come back more to the access fund work, but since we kind of, since that was a good segue, can you, Tell me a little bit about how you got to where you are now. Um, you know, where did you grow up? What were your early yeah. outdoor experiences? Um, I grew up in rural Minnesota, South Central, and, and wedged in on a little stand trees wedged in between some soybean and cornfields. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad was just passionate about camping and taking us outside, and so he did that a lot. We'd make a trip west. Um, we rarely went east. We'd make a trip west, uh, and my mom has a has a binder of the maps of every trip we did really of every year of my of my childhood and and they got bigger and more ambitious and longer over time <laughs> and so i got exposed and I, we spent a lot of time in the boundary waters canoe area oh yeah and <clears throat> some you know there's a lot of people who don't realize all the things that minnesota has to offer if you're serious about the outdoors and just experiencing nature in all of its mm-hmm. ways and you live in the united states the Boundary Waters Canary has got to be on your life list. That's what I've heard. I've never been there, but it I've heard it's spectacular. Of, it, yeah. I mean, and the, the, the way that, you know, you, you, you portage your canoe and then you put it in and mm-hmm. you, you paddle across a lake and then you get to a trail that sometimes doesn't reveal itself until you're just about at the bank. You're like, we must be lost. And oh, there's a little trail going. And then you get all your stuff out. You hike up and over and you go to the next lake and the lake has got a totally different character than the last one. It is just, there's nothing like it. Yeah. So we did a lot of that and, and I got an appreciation of that. And then added in there, for some reason, there was just this, I just had this draw to verticality. I just uh-huh. wanted to be in the vertical. I climbed trees. I just loved hanging off stuff. I loved the exposure. And so a friend of mine and I taught ourselves how to climb uh-huh. out of a book 
two books, A Basic and Advanced Rock Craft by Roy Robbins. Yeah. We went to REI and we bought a rope. I remember I'd never laid that many 20s down in my life. I think it was like 120 bucks. That was... But this is like late 80s sure, for a kid. Sure, yeah. You know, it's a lot of lawn mowing there. <laughs> yeah. And, um, <clears throat> and we survived that process. And so, um, you know, I went to college. When did you realize that you had no idea what you were doing? Because I imagine at that point, I did a similar thing when I was a kid. And then when I was on Knowles with you, I realized I, don't, I should be dead now. I was hooking up the stuff wrong. At least you had the book, I guess. I yeah, was just kinda... I would say that kind of dawned on me slowly over time. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was we were we we did some dumb things, but we were never truly reckless. Yeah, yeah. You know, like my first lead climb was on a half rack of hexes and a half rack of nuts uh-huh. because they I went to REI and and they said, well, if you can't afford to buy every single piece of protection in the series, buy every other one, uh-huh. and then you can rotate them and you'll get that size. Yeah. I'm like, that's great. And so, but we, we learned over time, we made a bunch of dumb mistakes, but yeah, looking back, I mean, there's definitely some things. That, frankly, I probably made more mistakes later in my career in the big mountains. Really? Than I did, yeah, because snow. Just more variables. There's, there's more, var- I mean, at least when you're top rope in Minnesota, you can kind of see everything yeah. in front of you. Sure. When you're on a big mountain and there's some huge piece of ice hanging above you or the snow slope has got some hidden instability that you can't perceive, uh-huh. I'd say I've made more dumb mistakes in the big mountains than I did in those early days, even though I was a total buffoon like, <laughs> as a climber, really. But, um, and so, yeah, so I went to college and I just didn't... Um, in Minnesota? In Minnesota at McAllister, great college. Yeah. But I just didn't feel like I really had a handle on what I wanted to do when I grew mm-hmm. up. And then I did a Knowles course. In, when you were in college? When I was in college. Okay. I did the spring semester in the Rockies in 1993. Totally changed my life. Yep. Totally changed my life. Because my dad and my family had planted the seeds, but I didn't see a path forward in terms of like a career or a lifestyle. And then I, I spent a semester doing all these courses and um, really got a lot of life experience, but but maybe even, and, and of course a, a lot of hard skills, but maybe even more importantly, saw people mm-hmm. and a lifestyle that I could see myself sure. doing. And so um, after, yeah. So I, after that, I got a job at a camp in the Poconos as a rock climbing instructor, mm-hmm. uh, which was a huge stretch. Um, <laughs> and a guy by the name of Roland Rincon, who still lives here in Boulder, Colorado, was actually another instructor, and he was a real climber. Uh-huh. And so he took me under his wings, and that's when I that's when I had that realization of how clueless I had been in Minnesota because sure. it was he was a real climber. Uh-huh. And so anyway, so that was, he, he was my mentor. And then um, after, so did college, got a job at Outward Bound right after that, worked for Outward Bound and Knowles. And at the same time, just really wanted to go and explore the great ranges and do big things. Mm-hmm. And, just, and so um, had a few friends and did some trips in Yosemite, mm-hmm. did some big walls, did some alpine climbing in the Sierras. And then... Um, a friend of mine who happened to be going to a college right nearby, Jimmy Chin, mm-hmm. and I um, uh, put together a trip to Pakistan. And that was 99? That was 99. That yeah. was right before we met. Yeah. Because I remember when it was, when our section was over, you showed us all the slides from the, from the, mm-hmm. and I think at that point, this could be wrong, but this is how I remember it. And it's, it's cool, so don't correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but but he, uh, you, you showed us the slides and you said, 
you know, we're uh, you know we're gonna try to sell some of these photos. We got a we got a good camera. I don't know if we'll be able to sell them. My buddy Jimmy hadn't seen them yet. And I did, you kept talking about your buddy Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. And then it turned out years later or later on that you sold one photo and it was the one Jimmy took. Is that right? Well, something like that. That was very accurate. So, bef- but as we were training for that trip, uh-huh. we, we were training for that trip. I had bought a real camera, like real camera. Like yeah. It was a Nikon FE, and um, and Jimmy was on that. We were we did uh, Iron Sun, uh, Iron Hawk to Native Sun on uh-huh. El Cap as a training, and um, and on the on the course of the way up, I told him about how the depth of field works, and you know it's a story I've told a number of times, yeah. but it's totally true. I was always more of a technically minded sure. person, more kind of an engineer, uh-huh. and so I love the the concept of depth of field and that stuff and all stuff. And Jimmy's more of an artist, and so. And ultimately, it's the artistic eye yeah, yeah. that's the that's the thing. And not to say that he didn't figure out all the other stuff first, but I was more attracted to that. And so, yeah, he took like I think two pictures <laughs> on that. And so we submitted uh-huh. them to Mountain Hardware, uh-huh. and they bought one of the ones that he had taken for five hundred bucks. And wow. I was like, whoa! So we split it. Uh-huh. But then, um, you know, Jimmy did a lot of the hustling. Yeah. For that trip, yeah. he got the information from the late and great Galen Rowell on that valley. Yep. Uh, was pivotal in securing sponsorship from Mountain Hardware. Mm-hmm. He really he, he did a lot of the hustling, and um, then ended up you know by the time we got there, he he had he had gotten serious in, about photography uh-huh. and and shot a lot of stuff. And so we were both shooting. Yeah, at that we both shot in all of our trips. I mean, as as time went on, and it was clear that that was going to be Jimmy's career. Of course, it was much more his focus. Yeah, but we always both brought a camera and. And there was a few times where I got some really great images, and there was a few times, like, um, it's not up on my wall right now, but there's one picture, it's one of the best shots that Jimmy took from that time period, uh-huh. and I was standing right next to him when he took that picture, and my picture didn't look any Really? Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember there was one picture in there um, where you would, you guys were walking across a, a snowfield or something, and this massive avalanche came down, yeah. and you took... I guess back in the it, it would uh, it was a 1999 selfie, um, but d- can you tell that story real quick? Yeah, so Jimmy and I, so the, the it was the we went to the Sharakusa Valley in Pakistan, mm-hmm. and um, we got there first, mm-hmm. and we did we made three attempts on a, on a formation called uh, Fatih Brak that had only been climbed once, and this face hadn't been climbed, and we wanted to do it in a day, so we did it. We made two attempts, and both times we just—I mean, we like left it all up there. You know, what I mean, came yeah. back down, just destroyed, destroyed. and 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 it was it was it were low moments. I mean, we were new to the whole alpine climbing game. How old were you then? Um, let's see, ninety-nine. I was twenty-seven. Okay, and um, and it was stressful, and we got on each other's nerves. Sure, you know, I remember one th- one morning. I think this is the morning that we actually ended up meeting. We decided, okay, we got to bring baby gear. You know, we want to be total badasses yeah. and, like, do this thing in a push. But after getting totally bouted two times, uh-huh. all right, maybe we'll bring sleep mags. And so we get we get up one morning, and, and, and we've already been up this thing twice, and it's kind of dangerous. And uh, I had this brilliant idea that Metrix was this, like, uh, kind of protein Oh, I stuff. remember those. Yeah, 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 yeah. Metrix. But I thought, okay, you put M&Ms in it. And it's going to be awesome in the morning, you know? <laughs> and so we're eating cold metrics with M&M's in it. And it is terrible. I mean, it's like metrics is good if you have it as a sh- shake. Sure. But if, if it's cold gruel in the morning, 
it's horrendous. And it's like two in the morning, and we're eating this nasty meal. Uh-huh. And I, I look over to Jimmy, and I say, Jimmy, the last thing in the world I want to do right now is go up on that mountain. <laughs> and he looked, and he got pissed at me. He's like, He's like, that is exactly what I needed to hear right now. Thanks. You know, was, we were just kind of getting sure. like a little testing. Sure. But we got up on the thing. The sun came out. We got up. We found a baby spot. And we went all the way to the top finally. Uh-huh. And we came back down. And, and um, I, th- I think we spent two nights at the baby spot one day, on the, one time on the way up, one time on the way down. And had an awesome adventure. Yeah. And frankly, it was time for us to spend a little time apart from each other. <laughs> you know? And so then three other guys showed up. And um, Evan Howe and Doug Workman and Jimmy teamed up on a route called, on, on, did a new route on Beatrice. Mm-hmm. And then a guy by the name of Jed Workman and I did a, worked on Parhot Brock, which um, <clears throat> hadn't been climbed before, mm-hmm. had been tried a few times. And so we spent 12 days up on this thing. Wow. And we tried to free climb it. We climbed up to, I don't know, hard 11 or maybe 12A or something. But ultimately, there were some parts of it that were too hard. But this is a, these are big granite spires. Mm-hmm. And um, we spent 12 days up there in a portal edge, mostly. Did summit. And all the time, there's this hanging glacier next to it. And we, and it, would, it was calvi- calving off bits. Uh, Sarac fall. So it's sure. a big hanging Sarac and chunks of it come off. And so it, was, it became kind of a game to see if we could take a picture of it actually falling. Sure. So as soon as you heard that kind of telltale rumbling sound, we both grab our cameras yeah. and point. So we'd been training our, and we hadn't gotten any of the shots really, nothing uh-huh. interesting. And so we've been training ourselves this whole time. So um, the, now what I know now is, Sarac's are fundamentally, and hanging glaciers are fundamentally unpredictable. But if they start kind of calving off like that, it can be a telltale of a more fundamental that they're kind all, of install going to come off. Yeah, 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 exactly. So we get we 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 had a success we we had a successful ascent. We were up there twelve days. We you know there was, a, there was a big snowstorm that we waited out. We came down. Um, Jed is up one pitch uh-huh. above me, and I my feet have hit terra firma for the first time in twelve days. So I'm psyched. Uh-huh. I mean, there was a ledge up there we could walk around, but for the first time in twelve days, I'm on the ground. Things are good. Um, I unclip from the rope. The rope's still up there, and Jed's up about hundred and some feet above me, and I hear the rumble. And I'm and and instinctually I just grab my camera and take a picture because like, you've been, been training, training for that yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking through the viewfinder and I take the picture and I see chunks of ice the size of cars mm-hmm. hurling at us, like flying right at us. And I realize this is the big one. This is what all those little chunks of ice have been kind of foretelling. Mm-hmm. And. Um, and then I could see the whole thing was coming right at us. And so I grabbed the rope and wrapped my hand around it twice. It was too late to clip back in. I thought I was going to get blown. I didn't yeah. know what. So I grabbed the rope, wrapped it around my hands a few times, and then pulled into the to the face. Yep. And what happened was there's a powder. With, with that kind of a huge uh, ice fall slash avalanche, there's a powder blast. Mm-hmm. The air is super saturated with, with chunks of ice. And so it just hit us. And um, but the, we were about a hundred and some feet above the the glacier. There's a, at the base of the route. There's a scree field, mm-hmm. and so all the chunks of ice went below us yep. on the glacier, and it was just the blast on the scree field. So I couldn't breathe for a while, and I thought I had that moment where you like, okay, this is how it, it ends. Sure, this is how I'm going to die, and. Um, and and it blew our packs down. Some of our yeah. bags were already down. Blew me around. 
And then it went kind of quiet, and then the mist just settled. Just settled, and and then you're looking around, and and then this, the self you're talking about. Then I turned the camera on myself, and I had like a centimeter of like snow looking uh, stuff on me. Yeah, which is from the black. Do you have a picture of that? I do. It's it's somewhere. Yeah. Oh yeah, that that could be good to put on the side. Okay, I, I, I clearly I'll remember. remember it. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry. I'm so long winded. No, no, no. I, I love help, these stories. I can't, I can't help but tell war stories. I and, love this um, stuff. And so. We look around, and um, our packs are blown down yeah. the mountain, the, the, the scree field, and there are football fields and football fields. I don't know how many square hundred meters yeah. of uh, just chunks of ice <laughs> on the glacier below us, and like 40 feet deep. I mean, if, if we had been down there, we would have melted out by now, but we would have been encased. I mean, if we'd been about a half an hour, 45 minutes ahead of schedule, it would have been over. And so... Jed run, yells down at me, are you okay? Are you, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. And so then we realized that this, um, this route in this valley is facing our base camp, but base camp's like a mile or two away. But all of our buddies, are. we knew they were down. They'd already right. come down from Petra. So we, it took us a while to find the packs and to get a radio out. And as soon as I turned that radio on, they were yelling for Jed's you. brother was on there <sighs> going, Jed, Jed, are you there? Are you there? Jed, Jed, are you there? And we transmitted and we said, we're fine, we're here. And they were just, because it was the biggest, I mean, we're in this, Syracuse Valley is huge. you got K6, K7, all these things. Yeah. That was the single biggest slide we saw over two months in the whole valley. It was right on us. Is that the closest call you've ever had? Um, probably second closest. What's the first? Um, first closest was, uh, was, was um, goes in that category of boneheaded things I did in the big mountains, mm-hmm. which were actually stupid and the mistakes I made in the sure. top Minnesota. After uh, in 2001, after we made an attempt on K7, it was mm-hmm. me, Jimmy Chin, and Conrad Anchor, mm-hmm. and we were up there 15 days and got bouted. We came down, and I was still I I, st- I wanted more. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Conrad left a little early. Jimmy didn't want to go up, and I was real. I just I just had that urge, uh-huh. and so I went out hiking one day and decided to um, just check out this coolar. And I had hiking shoes on and like super light aluminum crampons and a, and a really light axe. And it was one of these things where you just keep making, you're like, I'll just go a little further. I'll yeah. go a little further. And all of a sudden I'm climbing water ice, Alpine ice three, you know, with <laughs> bad equipment, no ropes. And occasionally I'd call down to Jimmy and be like, Jimmy, I'm up here. It's so cool. But I don't know if I should keep going. What, what do you think? And Jimmy's like, dude, what, what the hell do you want me to tell you? I can't. He actually, he's like, what do you want me to say? Like... Congratulations! Yeah, what yeah. you know? And um, anyway, I topped this thing. I was like an eighteen thousand foot peak, and um, and it had a really cool view of K seven. Sure. And I knew I was standing on a cornice. Like K two is off in the far distance. So, the, but basically, I'm, I'm on top of this peak, and I'm looking at K seven in front of me. On my right is base camp. Uh-huh. On my left is a valley that doesn't go to anywhere. Uh-huh. It is remote. And I just wanted to get a picture of K7, so I'm kind of looking over. I know I'm on a cornice, and the, the cornice collapsed, and it <sighs> cut. It cut further back than I thought it ever could. Sure. The thing about cornices is you just don't know yeah. how far undercut it is unless you've either probed it or you've seen it. Uh-huh. I did neither. And so it, it collapsed right behind my feet. So my feet started falling towards the wrong side of the ridgeline, and it was like 80 degrees for a long ways. And so I did, you know, the rolling down the windows uh-huh. thing. And sure. so I, I was, I was spinning my arms 
and I reached behind me and I caught the smell with my arms right as my ass was going off the wrong side and pulled myself back up. Yeah, that's about as close as you can That's get. That's close. And it was one of those things, it wasn't that dramatic, it was a small cornice. Yeah. Um, but in that moment, I was like, if, if, that, if that had gone just a little differently, I would have fallen on the other side of the ridge and no one ever would have heard from me again. They probably never would have found me. Holy cow. And, um, and you know, it, those sorts of stories, I mean, they're fun to talk about. They're fun to recount and listen to sometimes. They get glorified. Uh-huh. And as I'm just really glad I'm alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and well, honestly, I, you know, those two, those, like I said, those, those, you know, the, the, the close calls, the near misses make for good storytelling sometimes. And I think it's, it's instructive. And I think, I don't know, it's just kind of part of the human nature to want to know about. Oh, sure. Those who have been to an edge of some sort and come back to tell a story. But ultimately those aren't, it, it's the, it's the climbing. It's the, there's so many maybe more mundane experiences mm-hmm. from these big expeditions I've done that, that were much more. You'd have to write a book about that though. Exactly. Yeah. To get the point across. Whereas right. with that, everybody, everybody right. gets it. Even if you've never even been on a, um, you know, rock face before you get it. That, that's, that's scary. Right. Um, so with those massive adventures and then just kind of the, your run of the mill adventures, which are massive adventures for most people, you know, with Knowles and Outbound, is there any kind of overreaching, um, I don't know, philosophy on life or, or a, uh, a lesson that you've learned that, that from all those adventures? I mean, I, th- I think um, I feel very fortunate to have gone for it as a younger man mm-hmm. and to pursue my passions and take risks. Um, I think adventuring with other people and other cultures, wh- whatever way that looks, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't have to be climbing. It's just, it's just a beautiful organizing principle for travel and for being mm-hmm. I mean, I felt so much passion about yep. these trips and these places and I'm also really glad I lived through it because not everybody does sure well and, when we were on Knowles remember uh, that was when Alex Lowe died yeah when we were on the glacier doing you were teaching us glacier mountaineering and uh, I remember you guys somehow you, you found out and that was and then you know I, I just saw on the, you know, on the news recently that this his body was found and then his partner he and just, just melted uh, out. he just melted out and it was you know on that Knowles course that we did together that was when I was really grappling with because I knew I wanted a family and a career yep and I was writing a letter to Alex in my mind there's a lot of time on a Knowles course or an outbound course to have you know contemplative oh sure personal time and so sometimes what I would do is I just write letters to people yep and so I wrote, was writing a letter to Alex in my head. Because you had met him before. I met at him some once yeah. at, at the base of El Cap, and I didn't even know who he was, but you could just tell. The guy had uh, a, 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 just a radiant personality and energy mm-hmm. that you could sense from a 50 feet guy. away. He was a special person mm-hmm. and who had very – he didn't know who the heck I was. And he had – he, he – I, I left – the brief interaction with him, feeling better about myself. That's great. You know what I mean? Yeah, they, they, I do. People, they say that, you know, you don't remember what people say or they do. You remember how people make you feel. And yeah. being around Alex one time made me feel good. Yep. And so I wanted to ask him, how did you balance everything? How do you, how in the hell do you have three kids, uh-huh. a wife, you do all these trips? I, I, I can't see how you do it. And, and then I came out and he had, he had passed away. And, <laughs> and ultimately, um, in some ways, that was instructive. Well, that's that's another question I had. I wanted to ask is when did you make the decision to 
kind of put go all in on the education and advocacy work because some of your partners that you just mentioned they've made a, a full-time career out of climbing mm-hmm. and you were with those guys you could have easily done that if you wanted i don't know about easily well you it wouldn't have been easy but i think just was, given given your success in other parts of life if you put your mind to it i think you would have had a pretty good shot but so what was there what was the was there a single point or was it just this kind of process where you that's a good question there's a few things um the, if there was one moment, I, I had an interview with um, a company mm-hmm. that sponsors athletes, mm-hmm. and um, and I talked to this person, and um, and I was trying to explain to this person that I was working for Outward Bound and had a real. Um, at that time, I had started. A, I'd helped start a mountaineering program in South America. Mm-hmm. And I felt I felt a real a high level of responsibility for following through on my commitments there, mm-hmm. and I was talking about potential sponsorship, and and this particular person and I'm not going to identify the company or the person because it, it is it, he was a fine person, but it, he didn't even understand what I was talking about. Yeah, he thought I was complaining, and told me to basically told me to suck it up, <laughs> and in between writing and being a photographer, you can make it work like everybody else does. Uh-huh. He thought I was complaining that I needed a job. Uh-huh. And I was trying to tell him, I can't just walk away from this thing because it's something I've built that's only half done. And I, I feel a commitment to the people that are part of this yep. program. And I just realized that there was a fundamental, in my view, and I'm not passing any judgment, really, I'm not, yeah. a fundamental disconnect in terms of values. Yeah, there is. I mean, there's, for, there's for me. Sure. And I just thought, that's not what I want to be when I grow up. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, people like Conrad have used his have used their platform to do great things in the world. Yes. I mean, you know, Conrad uh, lobbies in Washington D.C. too for a lot of things I talked about earlier here in the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jimmy Chin is telling stories and inspiring hundreds of thousands of people around. I mean, they they have managed to do incredible things that go so far beyond themselves mm-hmm. in their work. And there are other athletes that do that too. I mean, Emily Harrington, Lynn Hill, there's all, anyway. So th- there's a place for people like that in the world to inspire others. And it didn't feel like my path. Mm-hmm. I mean, on the one hand, I wasn't so, you know, I, I didn't have just the raw talent that people were just going like, holy crap, we got a response to that guy. Yeah. It, I would have had to, to really hustle, but more fundamentally, um, I could just tell it wasn't what I wanted to be when I grow up. Sure. You know? And not to say that, you know, I, I'm, I'm an executive director of a nonprofit. It's not the sexiest thing in the world all the time, but I find it really fulfilling, this sort of work. I found working for Outward Bound really fulfilling, mm-hmm. and it just feels more true to who I am as a person. Sure. And, you know, I haven't done a whole lot of other... I, I still could have done big trips, too. I think the other piece of it is... They're dangerous, and um, I didn't want to do those trips too much longer. I think that's an interesting point that you didn't want to do it because I never understood that until my daughter was born 11 months ago. Because I always thought that oh, well, sometimes people have kids and then they just they don't they don't have time or they don't have the money and they have to put that stuff aside. But now in the few you know trips I've done that take three or four weeks, I just don't want to do them. I don't want to leave for that long. Yeah, and it's not at all like I'm I'm uh, you know putting something aside or, or having to compromise. I don't, 
as much as I used to want to do those trips, yeah. I don't want, I want to be with my daughter now. And I, I guess it's an individual thing for everybody, but I just in the last 11 months, I've, or I'd say the last six months, I've gotten that where I never did before. I think having kids for me changed things too. But even before that, there's a certain pattern that happens with these big trips. It's like, okay, you go to some foreign, faraway place, mm-hmm. you get all your shit together. You, yep. you go through these trials and tribulations to get to base camp. Somebody gets sick. <laughs> and you show up to the objective. Maybe you change objectives. You know, And I'm, I'm not making light of it. There's all kinds of like cultural interactions and stuff. But then you throw yourself at the objective. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes something really scary happens and somebody nearly gets killed. Yep. You either make it to the top or you don't. You come back home and you tell the story. That is great. And for me, after doing that two times a year for three years in a row... I started feeling a little burnt. I wanted to do something else in my life. Um, and, you know, there's other ways to do it. But people like like Conrad and, and Alex before he passed away and, and any number of other people, there are some people who that is just, that's just who they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, Conrad will go up and he will suffer over and over again. Yeah. Uh, Josh Wharton's another person. I mean, there are some people who it is just deep in their blood mm-hmm. to be an alpinist and I hats off, and I almost feel like it's similar to like Knowles instructors. There's some Knowles instructors who Mate, were, who were still doing forty years out of it. who yeah. were doing it forty years in, and they still have that childlike enthusiasm as though it was their second day on the job. Yeah, I've always been in awe of those people. And I'm, well, I think I'm, you I'm have that now. Of, no, but I, I think you did because I, I clearly remember on Knowles. I, I don't, they're like full semesters of college that I don't even have any <laughs> recollection of, but I remember everything from Knowles. And I remember you told me at one point that you, I think you were living in your car and you were maybe, I mean, making some minuscule amount of money on a on an annual basis. And I remember thinking how awesome it was that there was no question that's what you wanted to do, that you had that much passion for the climbing trips and Knowles mm-hmm. and teaching that it didn't matter about money. It didn't matter about having a house. You were completely focused on what you're doing. And I think that's you've continued that. I mean, obviously, it's changed a little bit with the family, but um, I mean, the, the way those guys, or Conrad, or any of those guys, go hard in the mountains. I mean, you're doing that here, and you're yeah, going to Washington we, D.C. and we, a lot we've, of we've, 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 we all find our paths. Yeah, you know. And I think finding your passion and, and to me, there's it's almost like uh, it's almost like eating fruit. Mm-hmm. It's good to eat fruit in season. Yeah. If you try to eat a peach in the middle of winter, yeah, it's gonna suck. <laughs> You can go buy one. Yeah. yeah. It's just not going to taste very yeah. good. It's yeah. better to wait till the summertime. Yeah. And to me, life has seasons. Uh-huh. And I think embracing the season of life for what it offers and for what you're best suited to do and being totally okay with that those seasons change yeah. and that the, the ideals and the things that I was passionate about and gunning for in my 20s were different than they are in my 30s and now they're different than they are in my 40s. And I think, you know, when I think about people who I really look up to, it's people who not only are passionate about what they're doing, but are graceful in the transitions Mm -hmm. and remain engaged in in different ways, you know, over time. And so, anyway, not to get too philosophical about it, I feel, like I said, I feel very fortunate for that period of time in my life. I think... Being adventurous and passionate, and, and, and just, I mean, it was a very self indulgent existence. Mm-hmm. I mean, on the one hand, you know, I didn't have much, but on the, you know, I lived in my truck and, and that, everything else. But on the other hand, all, pretty much all I thought about was me. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh-huh. I had no responsibilities. I didn't sure. have a dog, I didn't sure. rent. 
it was it was everything was about what am I doing this day that's going to be awesome and to have that level it, it was a very privileged existence even though um, and, and it's important to say it is elective suffering is that what you call it yeah I mean yeah. I grew up middle class sure uh, even if if the bottom had dropped off on my transmission I could have found my way back to Minnesota you know what I mean so it, it was it, it, in what? some ways it's a privileged existence and I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity to be so focused on that and then also I feel fortunate to have kind of transitioned out of that and found a professional career well I think it's worth noting also that you it's not like you're just sitting in the office all day because you've told me a few of these I've seen some on social media but you know you did that uh the Colorado Trail on a mountain bike in a few days you did mm-hmm. the what do they call it, the Long's Peak Triathlon yep um, where you ride a bike up, do the diamond, run down, ride the yep. bike back. I mean, that's hardcore. Yep. That's, um, I mean, and here in Boulder, you lose perspective on what's really hardcore. But by any standard, that's hardcore. And you're doing that on top of a big-time job and a family and kids. So it's impressive. A good, it's, a good, um, it's a good outlet. I'm, uh, a tired dad is a good dad. I agree. you got to go full <laughs> speed, man. I'm tired all the time. Um, I mean, fatigued, like physically sure. fatigued. Oh, yeah, 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 like need to sleep. Yeah. Um, so for young people, I get a lot of calls for people who want to go into land conservation, and, you know, people a few years out of college. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure you get the same. Is is there any advice that you give young people? Um, I guess in your world it's, it's a lot more recreation, climbing-focused people. But, you know, yours was – it seems like yours is an example of just really following your passion, working extremely hard at everything you did, and it kind of led you to here. But you would have never guessed you would have ended up here, right? No, I mean, I got management experience at Outward Bound. So sure. I, was, I was running operations and managing actually a bigger budget at Outward Bound mm-hmm. even as, than I am here in the head. I mean, I was in the deep end on a management mm-hmm. experience uh, as a relatively young person managing you know 15 people on over three million dollar budget and wow. safety and and whatnot and so i would say that um i mean you got to follow your passion but you also need to have functional expertise that's relevant i think that's very i think people need to hear that <laughs> you know and so what how did i get this job i mean i the the board took a risk on me nine years mm-hmm. ago i was like a guy in a ponytail with in a cheap suit you still had the ponytail i still, still rocking the pony. i thought about cutting it off but I was like, "That's not me." Yeah, that's got to be me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's off now. Thank, thank God. But, um, <laughs> but in hindsight, like it should have come off earlier. But, um, but the functional expertise I had at that time was leadership and management. I had managed a big program uh-huh. and a nonprofit, and had shown some degree of leadership expertise, and so I was a viable candidate for this mm-hmm. job. The sorts of you know what I what do you look for in employees? I guess. Well, we have. Um, I've been here for a long time, and so um, I know what sorts of um, people we can we can attract. I mean, sometimes I'd say there's been two kind of uh, types, if you will. Um, one one type of person is someone who's got a skill set that we need desperately, and has done it in another organization that's bigger than us. Mm-hmm. And just isn't, you know, a lot of times bigger, like, for example, land acquisition. So Joe Sabater was a great hire that I made, if I don't say so myself. <laughs> and um, and he had been putting together land deals at a really big land trust in Seattle. And at a land trust that big, it's going to take a long time to work your way up the ladder. Yep. I told Joe, I said, Joe, listen, yeah, we're not, we're not an unproven entity here, but 
you run the program. Mm -hmm. It is yours. And so sometimes what we do is we look for people who have areas of expertise that we're looking for that have done it in a bigger, bigger organization. And we say, make, you know what it's supposed to look like in a really big professional organization. Yeah. You bring that here and understand that the scale's smaller, the budget may be smaller. Mm -hmm. So in our public policy program, we've done that. In our stewardship program, we've done that. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes we just we hire seasoned professionals. Mm -hmm for what they say in the startup world for some adult supervision. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Uh -huh. And so um, our communications and marketing person, we hired her out of an agency and she's phenomenal. When yep. I started here, there'd been a whole lot of good work done, but honestly, our, the, our messaging and the way that we talked about ourselves and thought about ourselves was just a mess. Your website's great now. I looked at it the other day. Well, that's I mean, the second so generation clean. she's overseen. Yeah. And that's her. She's been with us over seven years and she's a pro. Yeah. She's a total pro. Uh, Jim Chase, another example, uh, a guy who did operations and finance for a nonprofit in the Northeast for 16 years. We were lucky enough wow. to be able to track someone like him. I mean, he has seen it done right and seen it done mm -hmm. wrong a number of times. And to have that sort of wisdom, yeah. not only just on the financial side, but on the sort of interpersonal side. Um, so anyway, long story short, um, we hire experts mm -hmm. in their fields. And... A uh, passionate climber is a necessary but not sufficient condition mm -hmm. of being hired. So I'd say people who want to go into the land conservation world, um, you know, get some experience. Internships are a great way to get experience. And I know people, you know, say, well, it's great, but you don't get paid and whatnot. Um, it's hard to get your foot in the door or a good degree in a relevant area. The land conservation world is a very, very small community. I mean, you know, here in Colorado you go to the conferences and it's the same people every year and a lot yeah. of people jump from one organization to the other so it is really hard to get in and you know a little I, incestuous yeah I agree with you though that the, the getting those hard skills like I think a great example of a skill I don't know if you need it here but with some of these other land trusts is GIS skills oh. I mean that's the equivalent of being a, a welder or something I mean being able to it's a hard skill that you can take somewhere that, that is needed and you know I think having something like that on your resume would Get your I, I agree, and that I mean that's uh, we just started a GIS shop. Did you really? So, it's out, so, so outdoor outdoor alliance. Uh -huh. um, you know, none of the member organizations like Access Fund or others. Uh, I think Imba had one GIS person, but didn't have the scale to have their own GIS shops. I mean, you look at the like the Wilderness Society, Nature yep. Conservancy. They got I mean huge data systems mm -hmm. and layers and whatnot. Um, and so we're in the process right now of assembling the most comprehensive. GIS data set of recreational assets ever assembled in the United States. Oh, nice. And so, um, but that's just something that we've gotten to. But I'm going to say I agree with you. I mean, we don't, we're not in a position where we're going to be hiring a whole lot of GIS experts per se, but having that Something like set, that. Yeah. yeah. You know, for us, it's, um, you know, it used to be, we, we used to have, we don't think we've got any attorneys on staff right now. I mean, having a law degree is great. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it freaks bureaucrats out, you know, <laughs> managers that you're working with. It's interesting, like our policy director's got a PhD um, and is really well versed in, in, he's actually a GIS expert himself, okay. uh, Eric Murdoch, and um, knows the Park Service really well, did his PhD in Joshua Tree. And he's been in a few meetings where when people find out that he doesn't have a law degree. It tends up. They, no, what, they, they relax. Oh, really? When they realize he, oh, when he's he does not, it. When he's not an attorney. I see, yeah. Like their posture changes. I've seen that happen They before. settle into their chair. Yeah. And so... It's interesting because, it, you know, I used to think, of, well, it, you know, okay, Eric's great, but he doesn't have a lottery, but that's okay. 
is actually kind of an asset. I think I think you're right. You know what I mean? Because people he, do tense up around, and they're like, "Oh, he's an academic. He's not here to kick my ass." Yeah, to, to <laughs> nitpick every single thing. Yeah, yeah. And of course, we all know that that is not how all attorneys are. Sure. And, you know, and Luther Probst I mentioned earlier, he's got a law degree. Yeah. Uh, Adam Kramer, who's running out through lines, he's got a law degree. Those guys are wonderful in sure. interpersonal. You know, they're not litigators, but Anyway, there's nothing wrong with a law degree, but ultimately, good advocacy comes down to people skills mm-hmm. more than ability to interpret and apply the law. Yes, it really does. And if you're the if you're a big organization that has that's litigious, uh, that is a strategy, and maybe that works for some. I mean, the Center for Biological Diversity and others certainly wield that threat or actual mm-hmm. tool effectively in their own worlds but for us we get a hell of a lot more done mm-hmm. when we work with people and sometimes the threat of some kind of a, of a, of a lawsuit or, or some other kind of action I mean the, the truth of advocacy is you can't always be everybody's friend all the time mm-hmm. and and if you don't pose some kind of a threat political uh, legal uh, sometimes people won't take you seriously yeah and that was maybe more true in the old days than it is now. I mean, I think as, as climbing, in our case, has gotten to be viewed more legitimately as a legitimate use of the land. Um, a lot of times we're just we're just working with land managers to solve problems. But uh, so I got a little bit sidetracked there. But um, I would just say, you know, follow your passion, but get good training and experience. Bring some as, skills as, as to the table. You got yeah, you got to bring some skills. MBAs in the nonprofit world are pretty valuable. I thought about getting one myself um, yep. and I just, the time and money wasn't there. And I asked them, I said, I said, you know, should I get an MBA? And said, Brady, at this point in your career, if you need an MBA, hire one. Yeah. And I was like, okay, <laughs> that's a little flippant, but maybe that's true. And you know, so um, we, we've had it, we've had someone with an MBA here in the past. I mean, Jim doesn't have one, but he's got more than one in terms yep. of his practical experience. So, you know, great financial experience, the hard scrabble science, finance and management mm-hmm. skills, uh, and policy skills are really valuable in the nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think people, yeah, people who are considering a, a degree in outdoor recreation, for example, I think that's fine. Just pair it with a major in a science. No, I agree with you or, on that. Or, some, or, or, or math or some more, you know, kind of air quote, traditional. I got my MBA and one of the potential um, concentrations was entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. You know, that sounds real fun and and interesting and all that but what does that mean really and so i'd got it in finance because just like you're saying it's I, i'm a spreadsheet genius you know or I'm not a genius but i'm a master yeah and um i think that having that hard skill even though it may not have been as fun as entrepreneurship classes inventing you know coming up with business ideas yeah. it, it brings something to the table yeah yeah and so i, I you know the, i agree with that and so i also think though that um people who are uh can adapt, who work hard, who can learn things quickly, mm-hmm. who don't complain when something needs to be done that for extra hours or that isn't necessarily in their job description, who rise to the challenge, mm-hmm. will do well in almost any industry, certainly the nonprofit sector. Because sure. um, it'd be a stretch to say that the Access Fund is a startup. We've been around for 25 years. But there are sort of elements of a startup that are present here. You know, we've got to be nimble sometimes. We've got to put in long hours. Uh, we've got to deal with uncertainty and ambiguity every day. Um, 
you know, we don't know if, you know, hopefully we hit our budget numbers this year. We never know. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. the, you know, there's never <laughs> going to be glut in an organization like this. You know, with a startup, the idea is everybody work real hard and then eventually there's just cash everywhere and you can do whatever you want. And that's a key, you know, by necessity, you guys have a startup atmosphere every day. And I think that's. Um, yeah. And there's no, unfortunately, there's not a big um, equity Exit. Yeah, no exit. <laughs> no, no, there's no equity exit. Um, so we've already been going over an hour, which is amazing. I could talk about this all day. But um, so what would you say is the biggest opportunity and challenge for the Access Fund as you go into the next five years? Um, the, the climbing world of the growing. What, no, what are the numbers there? Like, what, we don't even know, to be honest with you. It just seems like climbing gyms are in every town, even I mean, small uh, the town. gross sales of gyms, of, of climbing gyms, last year was $250 million in, in, or 2015. Maybe it was 2014. I just heard this, so don't take this with a grain of salt. And I, I understand last year, 2015, was $300 million. Wow. So that's good growth trajectory. Now, not, not everybody who's doing that is going to go outside, mm-hmm. but it is an indication, certainly. Mm-hmm. of the growth of the industry of the sport of climbing um, places like the front range the, the population projections are alarming it's alarming for a lot of reasons yeah there's not gonna be enough water there's <laughs> right there's fundamental issues yeah. i mean climbing resources is one of them i can't say anything though i'm here from north carolina i'm yeah, i'm here I'm, from minnesota i'm here minnesota via north yeah. carolina myself so um and, and so, you know, land managers are, um, I was just talking to Jefferson County a number of months ago, and, and they just released a new climate management plan, and, and we had some private meetings with them, and we said, well, you know, we've read everything you put down on paper, yeah. and, and, uh, and, and it looks fine, you know, that you're addressing these concerns, but tell us this, the backstory. Why are you really interested in, in making these changes? And then the first thing out of their mouths was was population projections, yep. and they're saying we love this place, we love these sports. It's not we do not want to curtail access, mm-hmm. but we also don't want this place to get trashed. And there are more people coming, so I would say that the, you know the growth of the sport and and the growth of climbing gyms presents a great opportunity. I mean, gyms. Uh, it's a great place to have. There's a lot of camaraderie. It becomes the social and kind of athletic hub of, mm-hmm. of most climbing communities. You know, I probably climb in a gym more than I climb outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a great opportunity that, that, to have all these hubs of, of climbers all around the country, opportunities to connect with them, talk to them, educate them about what's important in, in our view of the world and how they can help is a huge opportunity. And, and if even 10% of the, the, this growth of people climb outside over time, we're going to have a completely different look sure. to the climb world. So the, the, the threat or the challenge is, is the growth of our population, urban centers, and the sport happens. Are we prepared? Are our climbing areas prepared? Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, it ultimately that's going to mean that some of these places are going to change a little bit, and that might mean more regulation. That might mean toilets and trails that are more permanent than what they used to be mm-hmm. and we know through experience that you know a lot of people especially people who knew these places before don't like change mm-hmm. and that's going to be a painful and sometimes controversial process mm-hmm. but such is the nature of of the world right now yeah that's right um so i've got some kind of quick questions your answers don't have to be quick but uh that i've asked some of the other guests, and so I'd be interested to get your thoughts. 
do you have a favorite or recommended book that it can either be related to climbing or the West or just in general a favorite book, one that you recommend people read? Well, for nonprofit, mm-hmm. uh, Jim Collins is this Good to Great for the Social Sectors little pamphlet. Have you ever read that? No, I've never read it. I've read Good to Great. So good. I, so, so Jim Collins. He lives here, right? Lives here. Yep. People don't realize he was a major badass back in the day. I've heard that he's pretty he's serious. Free-sold, he's free-sold the Naked Edge <laughs> in the early days. He actually regrets it because... Um, he was kind of upset about a girlfriend that broken up with him at the time, so it wasn't. He, he just he, went all in. He, yeah, he went all in, and he. I, I think he actually. I, I mean, I shouldn't speak for him, but I, I've heard he actually views that as a as, as a regrettable act because wow. uh, he's a he's a person who's very much in control of himself, his time, and his. Maybe but, that's why he's in control because he just lost it that one. Time yeah, right maybe. <laughs> but he climbed Genesis, which was like a sandbagged hard five twelve back in the day. Um, wow. He climbed the the nose of El Capitan without ascenders with Tommy Caldwell a number of years ago. Did he really? Yeah, I didn't really know any of that. Tommy Caldwell. Anyway, so point being for your listeners is this is a the, the famous uh, business consultant leader thinker was also one of the greatest climbers of his generation and climbs to this day. And he wrote Good to Great, and he wrote this little companion pamphlet pamphlet um, called Good to Great for the Social Sectors, and it's. Um, it's got most of the core elements of good to great. Frankly, you don't even have to read good to great. It helps, uh-huh. but if you just read this, it's a, I don't know how many pages it is. If, if, if we weren't in the process of making an office move, I'd have it on my shelf here. Yeah. But anyway, point being, it starts off with this, this concept, which is that um, business thinking is not the answer. And, um, and to me, that's kind of refreshing because a lot of, you know, sometimes the nonprofit world gets a reputation for being a little fuzzy. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. Uh, we we get attracted to this line of work because we're idealists and we want to do good. But the the rigor of the business world mm-hmm. is what really you need to institute to be a great nonprofit. And when someone says you need to institute business thinking, I know what they mean. But Jim Collins basically says, "Do you think that uh, there isn't plenty of mediocrity in the business world? Yeah. <laughs> do you think there aren't people?" screwing up who aren't clear about what they're doing uh-huh. uh they're basically no industry has a monopoly on mediocrity yeah is his point <laughs> that's a good point and excellence and rigor and ultimately the principles that he espouses in good to great mm-hmm. he says that is the thinking that's the answer and when we use business as shorthand for all these good things we're kind of giving short shrift to these other sectors yeah that there's excellence in the social sector too and there's plenty of, uh, of examples of, of where organizations are falling short in every, se- every sector. So, and he also translates some of the, uh, you know, in, in good to great, some of the concepts he talks about are very business-focused. Mm-hmm. And he kind of translates a little bit. Anyway, long story short, I love that book. That's great. I've never even heard of that, which is yep. crazy. Yeah, I love the book. And I'm not a big kind of management consulting self-help sure. kind of reader. Right now what I'm chipping away at is... Um, yeah, I, I don't know where it is because my, my three-year-old daughter hid my tablet, and it's, the book is on my tablet. So I actually <laughs> stopped reading in the last week because I can't find anything. But um, I, I had the flu, and I started reading the memoirs of, of Winston Churchill from World War II. I just read a book about Winston Churchill uh, like two weeks ago. Really? Yeah, and I didn't know anything about him. And one of my friends told me I needed to read one called My Early Life about him. And um, but I didn't want to go 600 pages or whatever. This is like that. This is like the short and condensed version of his. Is it great? Time. It is amazing. Okay, I'm I'm gonna get that one then. And I don't know what it is. If it's the time of my life, but for some reason I, 
I was at a beach a, f- a few uh, months ago, and uh, my wife's cousin found a, 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 a machine gun shell from World War II on oh, the really? beach. Really? Yeah. And I just, I don't know what it is. I'm just so fascinated with World War II right now. But, you know, Winston Churchill was an aristocrat, and he didn't really believe in, in representative democracy. Uh-huh. And blamed the liberal democratic kind of movement as creating the, the circumstances under which Hitler and, and German nationalism wrote. It's just fascinating. Sorry, it didn't get on. No, I think, I think the specifics about him are fascinating, but yeah. I also think that I love learning about anybody who just crams an unbelievable amount of stuff in their life. I love Theodore Roosevelt, and he's almost like the British version of mm. Theodore Roosevelt. Mm. Because if you look at everything he did, I guess he lived to be about 90. I mean, got, he, he wrote, wrote like two million books. I mean, he could write. Yeah, he wrote. I think it was something like two million words or something. I mean, just uh, off the Prolific. charts. Yeah, yeah. And although Theodore Roosevelt, they only apparently they only had one or two interactions, and Theodore mm-hmm. Roosevelt didn't like him. So I'm a little suspicious. <laughs> he of him. was wow. <laughs> um, Probably not surprising when you yeah, think about it. Yeah, <laughs> he said he wouldn't get up when a woman entered the room. He didn't stand up. Who did? Uh, Winston Churchill. Oh, really? And they said the author said, "Yeah, he probably didn't because he was probably enjoying some booze." And he's, he's so when he's, he got seated, he, he was yeah. <laughs> um, let me see. Any favorite documentaries? Um, the one that always comes to mind is uh, the Fog of War. I've never seen that. I love. That. I've heard it recommended Chris a million McNamara. times. I need to. All right, I'm going to watch. Fascinating. That. Incredible, On a lot of levels, huh? Incredible person who was a, a, a whiz kid in, in the Ford Motor Company and then just found himself thrown into this incredible, impossible situation. And I mean, kind of tragic. Yeah. And it also made me realize that, um, you know, when, when I'm older than you are, but yeah. maybe, I don't know if this applies to you, but when we were growing up, it was the Cold War and, sure. and like nuclear holocaust is what we were all freaking out about. Oh yeah, I was you know? around then. Yeah, yeah. And now it's 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 climate change, global warming, um, and we're kind of it, we're not freaking out about nuclear weapons anymore. Yeah. After watching the documentary, I realized we just got more things to freak out about now. It just it's kind of fallen out of favor. Yeah, it was very acute at that point. Yeah, we don't have a bunch, we don't have the same number of missiles pointing at each other, but you know what? In some ways, we're less secure maybe than we used to be. That's so, Ted, one of Ted Turner's big things, you know, <clears throat> is getting those nukes out of you know out of the hands of some of these people because there are just so many of them <laughs> and they're moving around. And I don't know. want to speculate; I'm not an expert, but I, I, I think it's I, I think there's just as much of a reason to be scared about it now as when we were kids doing fallout shelter mm-hmm. drills. No, I'm in fact, you. maybe even more. I can't think about it. I'm like that's like everybody else. <laughs> but, uh, I just don't want to so think that, about. I mean, there's plenty of good documentaries out there. I, I, I just the, um, yeah, I, that's a good one. Okay. Um, let's see. So, what if you had to pick a favorite location in the West, or you could say the world? No, let's say one in the West and then one in the world. What, what would they be? Um, just somewhere that holds a special place for you. The um, I love El Dorado Canyon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a it's close to Boulder. Um, it's got a road right through, but you'd never know when you're up on the walls. Mm-hmm. It's just you hear the river. Yeah, it's a cool place. And so close to home, it's my it's my favorite place. Yosemite Valley is is, is obviously an amazing place. I think in the world, I had one of the greatest adventures of my life in the Cochamo Valley of Chile. Mm-hmm. And. Um, that's when I was running mountaineering programs down there, and my wife to be, and I did a three-day bushwhack, 
Wow. We got bad information from a Chilean who I didn't know at the time was incredibly hungover from a party before and didn't know how to read a map. <laughs> That's a good combo. And he, <laughs> so he showed us on a map. He's like, oh, yeah, this goes. There's a trail. Yeah, yeah, I see. I, I sendero, I sendero. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a trail. There's no trail. <laughs> but we committed and we went and we ended up hiking up this creek, probably class two, three rapids. Yeah. Bush, like rock climbing around waterfalls. And we got up this side valley in the Cochimo to a stand of alerse trees and these trees live to be over a thousand years old oh wow and there was no sign of human passage ever not a nick on a tree not a scrap of trash not a the obvious place where you would camp if you ever were there uh-huh. nothing no wow. firing no, no nothing I mean and, and the locals didn't had never heard of any even being there before and uh-huh. so we had this incredible adventure it was a place that was threatened and still maybe but by, by being damned mm-hmm. and um Ultimately, we decided that it was too pristine to run a outward bound course through. Like, it'd be a great adventure, but we'd trash the place. Sure, sure. And uh, we just decided that we would leave it and never go back. And I'm, it's interesting because, you know, my, my day job is to keep places open for public access. Um, and that was one of those times where we went through and we're like, this place is, is special. And Perfect. I don't, I, it doesn't need to be legislated that no one should ever come here. But let's not promote it. Yeah. <laughs> let's, not, <laughs> yes. let, let's, not, let's not get paying... Americans sure. from, from the north to trudge through here and, and cruise and bang, boat pull up and bang it, bang it, bang a trail through. So that was a special, that was a special experience I got to share with my wife. Yeah, that area down there is spectacular. Yeah, hardcore weather though. Yep. Um, so I guess the next to last question would be if you could make a request of people listening to this podcast, what would it be? Oh, I don't want to sound too moralistic. Um, I'd say pay attention to political processes and participate mm-hmm. in what in, in whatever ways you can. Um, I've got good friends who are really intelligent people, and uh, when you say the word politics or political, it, it elicits an emotional, a negative emotional reaction. And um, I think there's a lot of reason to be cynical. Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons to throw your hands up in disgust, be it local, municipal, city, state, county, certainly federal politics. Um, and, you know, my, part of my job is to pay attention to this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to pay, I'm going to be more in the weeds than most people. But, yeah. uh, you know, it is, it, the, the cliche is true. The world is, is run by those who show up. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you don't, it doesn't mean you have to go to D.C., but pay attention. Um, try to Get your news sources from diverse places. Mm-hmm. Talk to people you don't agree with. Yeah. And consider their perspective. You know, one thing we haven't talked about is the, uh, is the, the public land sell-off kind of movement that's mm-hmm. part of the West. And I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think we should divest ourselves of federal lands. But I also don't think that the people who want to do that are idiots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've got a reason for it. Rob there. Bishop who is one of the proponents of this, a, a representative in Utah, is a very bright man. I totally disagree mm-hmm. with his worldview on certain things. Um, but he's not an idiot. Mm-hmm. And, 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 he, and there's a reason why he has the worldview that he does. Mm-hmm. And I think I would just urge people as they're forming their political opinions to try to put yourself in the perspective of those who you disagree with and, and really, really try 
to figure out okay why if why would that why would a person have a worldview different than mine? Yeah, it could be listeners to you that have a completely different attitude to me. So think about why would you know why would sure why would Brady think this way about this thing if he, if I don't agree with him? And, and I just think that's a really good exercise. And then it ultimately makes you a better advocate. Oh, it definitely does. I was listening to something this morning, and they were saying that the the whole internet and the connectivity of people that pe- most people would think that that would make more people well rounded and make their thoughts, mm-hmm. um, you know, they'd be able to get information from both sides. But this person said that basically what it is is every morning some people wake up and they read the Daily Me instead of mm-hmm. you know the the Daily Times or whatever, yeah. and it's basically that they're looking, they can get information that confirms what they think versus seeking out information that will challenge what they think. Yeah. And so because of the Internet, and, and you can just have a 100 different sources every day confirming what you're thinking, and you never get outside of that little box. You and, know, one of the uh, best things that happened to me on Facebook recently is, um, so when I got my first desk job at Outward Bound, mm-hmm. I, was, I was really freaked out. I wasn't having adventure in my life anymore, so I learned how to fly airplanes. Mm-hmm. Oh, did you really? I did. Yeah, yeah I was like, okay. And, and honestly, I mean, that, you can scare the crap out of yourself so quick in an airplane. <laughs> And so I got plenty of adventure, and a guy by the name of John Fadock um, was my flight instructor, and, and and we really hit it off. We were, I, I would say, I mean, I was his student, but we were friends. Yeah. And um, and he, we have very different political views, and I'm Facebook friends with him. And this whole thing uh, in North Carolina, the oh sure the bathroom oh, that's bill, a big deal, yeah. He and I engaged on that, and we've got different views on it, but it was a really interesting, and you know, so here we are on Facebook chatting back and forth with each other, you know, tit for tat. And, uh, but it was really good because my, my understanding of the issue was deepened by that. Yeah. And, um, and I'm not saying that we reached some higher plane of enlightenment on transsexual <laughs> bathroom <laughs> issues in this country, but I, uh, I gained an appreciation for his way of thinking and I still don't agree with him but yeah, and that's fair but I uh, but it was it was kind of refreshing honestly and, and it is interesting because it, it's, it's like it was kind of a big deal to talk to somebody who I didn't agree with I mean here here uh-huh. I, we're, we're recording this in Boulder Colorado which gets you know the socialist republic Boulder the Boulder yeah. bubble all that stuff yeah this is an insular community yeah um, so it's maybe it's something I got to be more mindful of. I think you have to pay attention. You have to be deliberate about it because things are set up now so that you can easily be in your own little bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how can listeners connect with you and the Access Fund? What's the best places to do that? Um, well, we've got you know you can get on our, our website as you mentioned. We, we we've spent a fair amount of time building that out. You can follow us on social media, and um, if there's climbers who want to get involved, uh, take a look at events that are coming near you and. By all means, connect with your local climbing organization. There's over 100 local climbing organizations in this country, and uh, just once once a year, you know, show up for a trail day. Yep. Um, I'd say, you know, that's another part of participating. I mean, participate in the public process, the political process. But I think whatever your passion is, if you can donate one day a year mm-hmm. to giving back on a trail day or some kind of a stewardship thing, um, and, and just spending the time to find which day that's going to be is uh, incredibly value, cause, valuable because not only do you um, do something good in that day, but you're communicating to the world and to land managers that you as a user group are the kinds of people that show up and protect a place. And honestly, I think one of the best things that's happened in the climbing community is our stewardship programs, not just because of the trail work we do, but because of the goodwill and great connections with decision makers that that sort of work engenders. 
Well, that's great. I really appreciate your time on this. That was fun. We could, I feel like I could talk about it. We for, could, yeah, thank you very we'll much. We'll do a part it was, two. All right, it was a pleasure. I thought that was a really fun conversation. Thanks so much to Brady for taking the time to chat, and thanks to the entire team at the Access Fund for all the important work they're doing. Thanks again to Mountain Khakis for sponsoring this episode, and as always, feel free to reach out to me if you have any ideas for future guests or if you have questions or comments. All my contact info is on mountainandprairie.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen. I'll talk to you soon.